Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global SolarPunk. Before we get started, a quick ask from the audience. If you like the show, please leave a review or comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today we have on the show Christian Bros. Christian is a Chief Strategy Officer of Android, a venture-backed defense technology company, and the author of The Kill Chain, Defending America in the Future of High-Tech Warfare. From 2014 to 2018, he was the Staff Director of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Christian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Amazing. Well, Christian, we're so excited to have you today. We read your book and we're absolutely fascinated by, by your perspectives. So the name of your book is The Kill Chain. Could you define what the term kill chain means before we get started? Yeah, the uh, the, the kill chain is obviously kind of a, a military term of art. Um, it's something that, you know, kind of everyone inside of the defense world, the small little ecosystem that is national defense kind of knows and understands. And most people outside of it, you know, really aren't that familiar with. And you know, there's lots of kind of ways in which it gets defined in very kind of tactical, technical terms. What I what I tried to do in the book is abstract it a little bit to make it more uh, kind of intelligible to the, the the you know the general reader who's not coming to this with special knowledge. Um, so at that sort of general level, the kill chain is a process of understanding what is happening, making decisions, and taking actions. You have to do all of this somewhat sequentially. Um, generally, it's really bad if you are making decisions in absence of understanding. It's really bad if you are taking actions without sort of thoughtful decisions. So, you know, whether these things are kind of coming together in links or webs, it kind of doesn't matter. The, the process itself, uh, you know, is, is somewhat linear and it is 100%, you know, each piece of it, um, you know, is indispensable. Um, so, you know, it's great if you can understand and, you know, take decisions, uh, but if you can't actually kind of get information to decision makers to, uh, to make good decisions, like everything falls apart. So, you know, the, the reason for focusing on this is because that is actually what the United States military, what any military is actually doing. And it is, I think, a way of, of making this more understandable to people who, um, haven't served, who don't work in national defense, who, you know, uh, all of the jargon and the acronyms that are constantly thrown around in this world kind of escapes them, you know, because this is what we do in our day-to-day -day lives. I mean, this is what businesses do. This is what sports teams do. Um, you have to understand what is happening in the environment where you're competing. Um, you have to get that relevant information to decision makers to, you know, take good and timely actions or uh, decisions. Um, and then you have to have an ability to execute on the strategies and decisions that you 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 put into place. So, you know that that kill chain process. You know when we start to confuse it with you know threats and technology and programs and and all of the the things that people focus on in national defense. At its root, the thing we are actually trying to do is what the military refers to as closing that kill chain from understanding to decision to action. Um, do it at greater speeds and greater scales than our competitors can, because that's how we gain this kind of decision advantage and, you know, and, and actually accomplish our objectives. Amazing. And one of the things that becomes clear uh, for, for the readers of the book is that, you know, you show that the U.S. military has long had a focus on uh, platforms that are very expensive to build, very expensive to maintain, and a lot of times are not really able to work together. Has this changed at all in the past two years since the book was published? And what needs to be done to really enact this change? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a massive question. And if you know the answer, let me know. But, um, you know, has it changed? It's starting to, um, you know, and I'd say the, the conversations that we're having in the national defense world about all of these types of, uh, you know, ideas, you know, the picture of the threat vis-a-vis -vis China, the views of new technologies, it's a very different conversation than the one we were having when I was back in government, you know, 2014, 15, 16, 17. Um, and that's good. You know, I, I genuinely believe that, you know, kind of decision, senior decision makers, uniform civilian and others, um, you know, I think really do understand that we're not where we need to be. Um, the timelines are moving, uh, you know, in some pretty troubling ways. And we, we have to really kind of get after this. 
I think the the challenge is, you know, where where everyone is kind of you know focused right now. It's like, okay, we've admitted that we have a problem. Now, what the heck do we do about it? And and that kind of gets to the core of your question. I, I think to a large extent, the ways in which we have traditionally thought about military power, you know, you could generally kind of describe as you know relatively big, expensive, exquisite, sort of heavily manned, hard to replace things. Um, ships, aircraft, vehicles, satellites. Um, and that's been the core of U.S. military power for a very long time um, and, and, and still will be to some extent into the future. I think the thing that is new and different is, you know, particularly because of the revolution in technology that's been occurring outside of national defense, largely in the commercial world, you can now start to see how these technologies are applying in a defense world where you can build a military that has very different attributes to the one that we, you know, kind of have, you know, come to know and love in the United States. And this kind of looks more like a consumable military. Um, you know, it's relatively smaller, lower cost, more intelligent, more autonomous, uh, you know, even to some extent, more expendable systems. And I think the, the, the sort of the core challenge here is that we have an entire, you know, what John McCain used to call military industrial congressional complex, right, that has been built up really since the Cold War to value military power in these big hardware intensive things. And the entire way in which we engage with this technology um, is still very Cold War-esque, right? We kind of envision that there are not going to be many companies in America that can build these things, aircraft carriers, long-range bombers. What is going to generate those new capabilities are very long government-funded research and development cycles, followed by relatively small procurements. And then once we buy those relatively small numbers of things, we're going to keep them in inventory and operate them and maintain them for 30 to 40 years. Um, again, there will be some aspect of the United States military, a lot of it, in fact, that's going to look like that. Um, I think the difference here is that you can imagine, again, that that sort of parallel military, uh, you know, the smaller, more uh, consumable things, the more intelligent and autonomous things being built in entirely different ways where actually I can push a lot of the uh, research and development cost of developing these things if I write the and kind of get the incentives right um, onto private industry. Um, when I buy these systems, I'm going to buy them in relatively large quantities um, and I'm going to buy them more frequently because I can and because every time I buy them, they get better. Um, I'm buying better versions of them because the technology is improving so quickly. And then once I have them, I'm not going to keep them for 30 to 40 years. I might keep them for two years or 18 months or three years. Um, and then once I've consumed it, I'm not going to plan to keep it in my inventory. I'm just going to throw it away and get another one. Um, and, and again, it's, it's because you can, and because that is what gives you this sort of like, uh, you know, speed to getting, uh, future proof, the speed to getting better capability into the hands of operators who need it. Um, so there's just this entirely parallel process that we need to be thinking about how we create the incentives to generate. And I think that's where we're falling down. So we've admitted that we have a problem. That's great. You know, I think people are genuinely committed to trying to get us into a better position than we are in today. Um, the challenge is kind of what do we do about it? And the problem I would submit is that we are systemically broken. Um, and that part of the way in which we think about this, uh, you know, is very antiquated. And we are not going to be able to take real value out of these new technologies, these new entrants into the defense market. Um, unless we kind of engage with them in an entirely different way that we're that we're just genuinely not accustomed to doing, you know, as a United States government. So, you know, some thoughts on that we can we can explore if you're interested in. But I think that's kind of the crux of the problem, which is like we're still going to need a lot of the things that we have, um, but we need a heck of a lot of these new things that we haven't yet even figured out um, how to kind of create an alternative pathway or a parallel pathway to to think about the values that these technologies bring. Um, and really the mechanisms that we need to create to generate real disruption at scale. Right. So to, to pick on that point a little bit, uh, something that is also seems to be a main takeaway from the book is that you believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the defense acquisition system as we have no longer fits its purpose, uh, which is something that we talked a lot about with some previous guests on the show, including Steve, Steve Blank, Mike Brown, Hondo Gertz, uh, and a few others. Could you dive deeper into, you know, how do you define that problem? Because it, it does seem to be downstream from all the other issues that you're talking about, which is how do, how do we even figure out 
you know, what the future military is going to look like. Yeah. I, so I, I, this is where I would say, look, the, the problem, the acquisition system is a problem. Um, it comes in for a lot of blame and it deserves, you know, its fair share of that blame. But I think the problem is actually larger than the acquisition system. And, and I think if we're only focused on the acquisition problem, we're not actually addressing the kind of the, the problem in its totality. And this is what I mean by that. If you pan back in how the Department of Defense, the United States government engages with technology, um, it actually starts well to the left of acquisition in the definition of requirements. And this basically looks like a lot of very well-meaning people with, you know, kind of average human powers of foresight trying to predict what technologies they're going to need in the future. The problem is that they're predicting on these wildly unrealistic timelines at a time where technology is moving as fast as it is and our threats are moving equally quickly. So, you know, uh, at a time where we are being disrupted by our threats and by our technologies, you know, we have people who are trying to define requirements for military systems that they plan to get in 2032. I have no idea what my mobile device is going to look like in 2032, or if I'm even going to have one. And what it what it does is that it actually kind of creates incentives, uh, or rather, it, it eliminates incentives for disruption and surprise. You know, we get what we want, uh, even if the thing that we say that we want isn't the thing that we actually need that doesn't solve our problem. You know, beyond requirements, you then go into a different community where you're building programs, you're aligning budgets to those programs. Only then do you get to the folks who actually are responsible for buying a thing uh, to go out and buy technology that are consistent with the requirements that the process defined. And then, oh, by the way, you've got to bring Congress into this to authorize and appropriate funding for the things that you want to buy. So if you take this whole process from end to end, you know, it's become elongated over a 10 to 12 year process. Um, the acquisition portion of it is only a part, uh, but the, the process itself is, I would argue, where we are systemically broken. And that process was built to deal with things like, uh, you know, big ships, large capital intensive hardware centric programs and systems that don't change that much. And you're not going to have many companies that are going to build them. You're not going to generate a lot of disruption, right? You know, the next destroyer is going to look remarkably similar to the prior destroyer. Um, you know, you just might have some different things into it. Um, but this whole different world of technology where we're, uh, I think, really seeing the kind of value in terms of lower cost, autonomous systems, software-defined systems, electronic warfare, weapons, loitering munitions, you know, th this is where you just need an entirely parallel process, an entirely alternative process to engage with those technologies where the way you're thinking about requirements, the way you're thinking about programming and budgeting, obviously the way that you're buying them in an acquisition system, all of that needs to be different than the way we think about, you know, uh, this process as it pertains to, you know, sixth generation aircraft, for example. Right. And Christian, if you want us to think about reform and how to initiate the reform on, on those issues, sounds like we have you know a mindset and culture shift uh, that, that we need that, that we need to enact. We need you know we have legislative challenges with Congress, we have bureaucratic challenges with the existing bureaucracy, we have supply challenges with you know companies that have been around for a hundred years, winning contracts over and over and over. How do we even start tackling this beast? Yeah. So, you know, maybe not surprising, you know, as someone coming from, you know, a long time in government, you know, my belief is you have to start this process somewhat small and kind of incubate it, right? You shouldn't just kind of overturn the apple cart and hope for the best. It's also not realistic. Like, this is not how we as a government change. So I guess like my suggestion would be the government spends, the Department of Defense spends way too much time trying to micromanage what it thinks its requirements for a solution might be, rather than to really kind of define what the operational problems that you're even trying to bring technology into the force uh, to solve are going to look like. So my sense would be, let's, let's actually kind of pick a handful of examples, some test cases, uh, where we could run an entirely different approach, kind of an alternative pathway to the current system that we have. Again, not just the acquisition system, but this whole sort of system of requirements, programming, budgeting, uh, and acquisition, um, to think about how we engage with these technologies differently. Um, so if you were to pick an area, you know, like something from the news where, uh, you know, in the current war in Ukraine, you know, I think it's it's pretty clear that we're struggling to keep pace with 
the supply of weapons. You know, Ukrainians are using weapons at a faster rate than we can supply them. You know, javelins and HIMARS and surface-to-air missiles and things of that sort. Um, you know, this is an area where you could envision, you know, kind of all kinds of new technologies solving these problems differently. You know, I think the typical kind of reaction is um, because we are so input focused rather than outcome focused, we say, well, you know, we have a Stinger missile system. We need a new Stinger missile system. Let's go back to the people who built the old Stinger missile system and sort of like get them to build us, you know, like a better version of that. In reality, the problem we're trying to solve is how do I stop airplanes from flying in places that I don't want them to? And it may be that a Stinger missile or some variant of that's going to be the best solution, but it may be that someone has a disruptive approach to that problem um, that looks nothing like a Stinger missile, but it is effective in generating the outcome that you want, um, which again, in, in the course of that kill chain process is like understanding where the airplanes are, making decisions about what you want to do about them and preventing them from being able to operate. This should be something where we could very quickly say, look, we are going to, you know, in a year to two years, we are going to hold uh, a competition in the real world, right? So we're not going to compete in terms of like PowerPoint presentations and like bureaucratic black magic. Uh, we are going to hold a real competition where we are going to evaluate fieldable capabilities uh, that can address this problem. We are going to do it on the basis of like, you know, core metrics that we care about, you know, cost, range of effectiveness, um, you know, levels of autonomy, uh, you know, levels of effectiveness and actually doing the thing that they're supposed to do safety. Uh, and we're going to pick a winner and we're going to pick a winner and we're going to give them a real contract to go into production, to get these systems, you know, downrange and into the hands of people who need them. But the, the core part of this being when that process has run its course, we're going to do this again in a year to two years. So if you lost in the first round, you now have an incentive to put your own research and development money into building a better system because you now know what you now know what the right system looks like. You know what the winner looks like or kind of what you're competing against. Or if you won, right, I think then, then you've still got your feet in the fire of like, hey, I, I won this round, but, you know, everyone is now gunning for me in the competition that's going to happen in two years. And you, you begin to start to create something that looks more like a free market. And I guess my contention is that, you know, in national defense, the problem has become that this, this system has become so closed and sort of consolidated that it really kind of looks like China at its worst rather than America at its best. And we need to find a way to get capitalism into more of these areas of defense where you can actually have it, right? It's going to be hard to get capitalism into uh, aircraft carriers where you've got like literally one supplier in America that's going to produce these systems and we're only going to have 10 or 11 of them. You know, but in a world where we're talking about low cost weapons, you know, uh, these kinds of systems where we could be buying them in greater quantities at greater speeds, uh, we could be modernizing them and upgrading them faster. We can be actually creating incentives for, you know, disruptive approaches to come in and show their worth on a level playing field. Uh, this to me is how you start to align a different set of incentives uh, to level the playing field and create real market competition in an area where it just doesn't really exist right now. And, you know, again, I would say if you could do that with one system, you know, or one sort of problem, you know, then you scale it to, you know, three or four or five more um, and start picking off more of this uh, kind of more and more of this defense uh, sector, defense ecosystem, where you can start to generate uh, something more like market creation uh, rather than have it be, you know, very statist, very kind of like government trying to manage industry, you know, keeping costs down, trying to generate performance in the absence of competition. Right. Um, and Christian, so over the last 10 years, we've seen uh, ever since Ash Carter came to Silicon Valley and tried to kickstart their relationship, we have seen some new organizations like the Defense Innovation Unit, uh, funding uh, from SBIRs and things like that. In, in what ways have those been helpful? Uh, or are they more treating the symptom and not the disease? Yeah, so I, I think they, they have been helpful in the sense that they are solving for part of the problem. So with DIU in particular, I mean, a, a core part of the problem for new entrants that want to work in national defense is like, how do I even figure out what the problems are? How do I even get on contract? How do I get a little bit of money to get started? And DIU has been very helpful in, you know, uh, making that process uh, more understandable, uh, more accessible, uh, 
uh, and actually generated you know real successes in getting you know companies outside of the defense world into the defense world doing things that are relevant for you know for defense users. It was not DIU's remit then to determine how you scale these things. And I think that's where the system is really kind of falling down, right? DIU has transitioned, you know, some of its technologies, but I think the the problem with the U.S. government is it doesn't think uh, like a venture capitalist. And and to be very clear, I do not want the United States government to try to play venture capitalist, as some you know would suggest. The money that they would have to commit is irrelevant, and the uh, expertise that they have, you know, is, is not actually helpful. The thing the government needs to do is buy technologies that are being provided by, you know, these kinds of new entrants at greater scale and, and sort of move across that valley of death at greater speed. And I think that's where, you know, you talk about things like SBIRs, they can be great as a way of getting started, right? You can get, you know, a million or a million and a half dollars to do a project over, you know, a 12 to 18 month period. And we've done a lot of that, right? I mean, there are literally hundreds of companies across the, you know, kind of defense ecosystem that are working on things like this at this moment. The thing that the government needs to do is actually generate, you know, kind of a, you know, a pipeline process of determining, okay, so we've made, you know, a large number of small bets on a lot of people. Now what we're going to do is assess all of those. We're going to probably cut away from about 80% of them and we're going to 10x the ones that are left over. And then we're going to do that all over again in the next phase, you know, 18 months later. Um, and what you're going to have left at the end of that process of, you know, making lots of bets, consolidating, 10xing, and on, uh, in, in much the same way that the venture community, you know, makes a lot of seed investments, makes fewer A's, fewer B's, fewer C's. By the end of that, you have some you know, really large-scale performers that are you know, in a position to really contribute at scale. And, and that is the way that you know, I think the government, with its buying power um, and its kind of monopsonistic position in this sector, uh, can really kind of use the incentives that they have to get people uh, from the small-scale stuff that is like all the fixation now to the larger contracts that are going to help turn you know, these companies into larger companies, greater performers, um, and and then start to align that with the private capital that is just looking uh, for the winners that they can uh, that they can invest in. Um, that is you know that is like first or second semester level economics thinking. But you know what is what is so shocking to me is how systematically we fail to do that in terms of thinking about the ways in which we bring technology into the department, um, you know, into national defense. It's just not how the system has been set up. Um, we're solving for part of that problem, but we're not even close to solving for the problem in its entirety right now. Right, right. And um, one of the major events since you published the book back in early 2020 is the Ukraine war. Has it been a sort of Sputnik moment for government, military officials, companies in the space? Has it served to catalyze change or not enough? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I think the honest answer is too soon to tell. Um, but I do think that it is, it is forcing people um, and really, I think, generating new thinking in some ways that could be very encouraging, um, not just obviously in, you know, how do we help the Ukrainians, you know, persist and, and succeed, um, but also how we start to think about, you know, what would this look like in a uh, scenario in Asia, for example, where, you know, what we're trying to do is, you know, deter, you know, Chinese aggression. I think the things that people are realizing is that, Part of this is about technology, but part of it is about thinking about strategy and doctrine and you know what you're actually trying to do. And what I think the, the the Ukrainians are sort of showing everyone is this kind of approach of, you know, people have called it a porcupine strategy. Um, this approach of how do I actually enable a motivated and capable defender to defend, you know, the places and, and people and sort of strategic real estate that they that they care about. That is that is a different type of problem than the United States military typically thinks about. You know, we have a military that's been built for a very long time on large-scale power projection. We are going to move this, you know, mountain of steel, metal, and iron, you know, across the planet. Um, we are going to kick the door in, you know, of an adversary. We are going to go, you know, into their physical or digital space. We're going to take it over. We're going to persist there. Um, that's how this is going to go. I think, you know. The thing that we're starting to realize now is like if that is how we're thinking about you know a peer competitor you know a China, 
not many historical examples of being able to do that real well. Um, I think a different sort of way in which we should uh, be thinking about this, which I think Ukraine has put into high relief, is actually the way we need to be thinking about this is kind of playing insurgent. Um, you know, we had to play counterinsurgent for 20 years. Like that was no fun. Um, how do we actually think about playing the insurgent role uh, as a way of deterring and, uh, you know, if necessary, defeating uh, a competitor that is trying to project power themselves? And I think that's the kind of realization that I see right now is, look, like the bad news is projecting power is becoming really hard uh, in the teeth of, you know, kind of ubiquitous sensors, low cost precision strike. Um, you know, kind of anti-access area denial capabilities like uh, what China has been building for 25 to 30 years. The good news is that if we play our cards right, like projecting power could be really hard for other people too. And I think that's where you're starting to see, you know, at the level of sort of thinking and strategy, ideas and doctrine, a different approach to kind of defensive warfare, deterrence warfare. And I think where you see the technologies really shine in that are not the sort of like big exquisite things that, you know, most of our defense budget goes toward buying. It is these lower cost systems, you know, where, where I would include, you know, missiles, weapons, you know, uh, loitering munitions, things that are incredibly relevant to those types of fights to say nothing of, you know, the low cost drones, you know, the overhead sort of low earth orbit satellite imagery, uh, the command and control, the software defined technologies, the things that are really kind of helping the Ukrainians stay in the fight um, and actually be incredibly effective against, you know, a, a superior force, right? However you, however you kind of char uh, characterize it. So, you know, in that respect, I do think uh, it kind of aligns with a lot of the things I was writing in the book, you know, kind of how do we generate defense in the absence of dominance? Um, how do we kind of get these new technologies uh, to, to be able to disrupt what our competitors are doing rather than constantly bemoaning the fact that our competitors are disrupting us? And I do think that wheels are turning, you know, in all of the right places in the Department of Defense and Congress. Um, the challenge, I think, is just, you know, can we actually turn, uh, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, this sort of spinning into real torque that can generate the kind of change that we're going to need to generate deterrence into the future? And not the far future, like the near future. Absolutely. And so, Christian, switching gears a little bit from internal issues to geopolitics, one of the most interesting aspects of the book that you talk a lot about is uh, China. Uh, and you go very deep on the thoughts that you and uh, in, in, in the work that you and late Senator McCain uh, have done about China. I've, I have actually had multiple people come up to me and say that, you know, it was your book that sort of woke them up to the challenge because ever since 2020, we have he heard a lot about China, but before then it wasn't really a topic of conversation or when people thought about U.S. adversaries, the media would always just say Russia. Why did China worry you from early on and what's the history and background of your interest and work there? The thing that was always so alarming um, to us was just this, the scale and sophistication of what uh, the Chinese Communist Party was working on. Um, you know, when, when you look, I mean, and, and to be very clear, a couple of things right off the bat, like one, the, the book that I wrote um, and, and much of, I think, our focus here is really kind of looking somewhat narrowly in kind of the military national security aspect of this competition. But I'd be the first to say that it encompasses, you know, economics and, you know, diplomacy and the information environment and, you know, all these other areas of, of, of the strategic competition. And the other thing I'd say is, look, I mean, like, let no one sort of, you know, come away from this with the impression that I think China's 10 feet tall. Um, I think they have tons of vulnerabilities and problems. But I think the, the kind of, I guess, like the message that I was trying to hammer in the book is like, they may not be 10 feet tall, but they're like six and a half feet tall and they're growing really fast uh, and in some very troubling ways. And I think, you know, the reason that we were so concerned about it was this has not been, you know, this kind of disruption that I think we're, we're facing from uh, China has not been like a hurricane that just kind of hit us one day unexpectedly. This has been the product of a systematic strategy and approach that they have had in place going back to the early 1990s. Um, and it's been remarkably consistent, um, you know, like, like, like far better books uh, than mine, you know, The Long Game by Rush Doshi, like it just lay this out, you know, in voluminous, like well-documented detail at how consistent, methodically and focused uh, China has been on trying to, you know, disrupt what we're doing and ultimately displace us. Um, again, looking narrowly into that sort of military competition, you know, 
initially um, and, and still largely now, they, they didn't build the same kind of military that we did. You know, they tried to build offsetting capabilities to um, to fundamentally disrupt how we think about warfare, how we practice warfare. Um, so not just kind of like, can they match us 1v1 in ships and airplanes? And oh, by the way, they're like outdoing us in, in both of those respects now. Um, but much of the focus was on how do they actually take away from us many of the things, the sort of core underlying capabilities that have been sort of foundational to the way America has traditionally projected military power, by which I mean our assumption that we're going to have kind of relatively unfettered access to forward basing, um, access to space, access to command and control information and intelligence, the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, you know, logistics, you know, these are all things where they have been building up and modernizing military capabilities to take away things for us that are kind of like the air we breathe. Um, when they talk about systems destruction warfare, that is what they mean. Um, it's not, you know, can we build more ships than the Americans? And oh, by the way, we can, and we are. Um, it's actually, can we systematically take away their ability to close the kill chain in terms of how they understand the battle space, how they make and communicate decisions, and how they you know, effectuate that in the actions they take. That is something that is just, you know, qualitatively and quantitatively uh, superior to, you know, what the Russians are building, for example, which, you know, has has a flavor of that, um, but it's just nowhere close in terms of the scale and sophistication, the sort of, you know, the, the advanced technologies that the Chinese are starting to bring into this through civil military fusion, um, the ability to kind of bring all of this uh, data and advanced technology, artificial intelligence and autonomy uh, to bear uh, from across their society, their economy, their civilian technology sector, you know, to make their military better. There's just nothing else like that um, in terms of a competitor that we are dealing with. And I think the bigger uh, concern here is that we don't have any living memory of having to compete at this level. You know, there's a lot of times where, you know, the, the Cold War, the Soviet Union are sort of thrown around as potential analogies, and they're just not even close. You know, at the peak of its power, the Soviet Union was about 40% of American GDP. You know, they weren't integrated in any meaningful way into the global economy, and they didn't have a meaningful kind of domestic base of technological innovation. And China has all of this. Um, and look, they may trip and fall tomorrow, right? I mean, their real estate bubble could burst. You know, they could have all kinds of things that hobble them. Um I don't think we can really kind of plan a strategy around the assumption that our, you know, our competitor is going to fall flat on its face in the coming months. Um, so, you know, we, we have to sort of uh, work under the assumption that, you know, this kind of juggernaut that has been building is going to continue to build, even if it levels out a little bit. And, and I think that's the challenge here is just, you know, we are dealing with a competitor that is operating at a scale that we haven't really had to contemplate as a country since arguably the, you know, middle to late part of the 19th century. Um, and, you know, you ask sort of like, what is it that we need? You know, all of these different questions of reform, you know, all of it's important, but, you know, to me, you know, you boil it down to one fundamental question, which is, are we serious or not? Um, and I think, you know, you, you can point to parts of American history, even recent American history, where you can say, when America becomes serious, we have an amazing ability to do phenomenal things on very rapid timelines, you know, even as recently as, you know, COVID-19, where we spent an enormous amount of money, we made a handful of big bets on, uh, you know, uh, vaccine developers. Um, many of those bets didn't pan out. A few did. We beat the vaccine or uh, we beat uh, the virus. Um that sort of level of seriousness where we're willing to say, yes, there are going to be risks. Yes, there are going to be inefficiencies. There's probably going to be some fraud, waste, and abuse. There's going to be some things that don't look good in the Washington Post, but we are going to operate at a scale and a level of seriousness where we're going to make big bets. We're going to consolidate those bets, um, and we are going to uh, win sort of key parts of the strategic competition that are going to matter for us into the future. And we're going to do it on a rapid timeline. Um, we're not going to be thinking about the world in 2040 the way much of you know this kind of futurism gets characterized. We need to think about how we uh, put ourselves into a fundamentally different position to compete in this decade. And that just requires a, a scale and a level of seriousness that I think many want to get to, but we still are not you know kind of uh, evincing through our actions.
Absolutely. Um, and it's funny, you, you mentioned Rosh Dosh's uh, book. W- one of the stats, and I think I read that uh, on his book that really blew me away, is that the, the GDP of China has reached 70% of the GDP of the US, which is the first time that a country has reached that magnitude in over 100 years. So uh, with a population multiple times the size of the US, they only need to be so competent to pose a, an enormous challenge, right? That's right. And and yeah, I mean, you know, somebody will say, ah, GDP is not the right metric. It's like, fine, look at other metrics. I mean, the, the point here is, yes, the the scale and the level that they are getting to, the level of sort of technological sophistication that they're bringing to bear, and the way that they're translating all of this into you know, a pretty clear geopolitical strategy, one element of which is their, you know, their their military national security complex. To to me, this is like wildly alarming. Right. Uh, and I think that. You know, look, there were many people at the time who were saying these things. There were plenty of people who were saying it well before I was saying it. Um, I, I don't really think that I broke new ground in the book. I mean, to some extent, I was trying to give voice to a lot of, I, you know, a lot of what I detected and, and sort of saw uh, every day in my time in government, which was, you know, there are plenty of people who got this. It was just, you know, it needed to be expressed in a way that you could get beyond the sort of like inside the beltway, insidery kind of defense world that we occupy. Um, and really try to have kind of a national level conversation about the fact that we are not where we need to be. We are being disrupted and we need to fundamentally change the way we do business. Right. So to double click on this, uh, one of the most memorable quotes on the book that you probably see uh, recited all the time is that you say, over the past decade in U.S. war games against China, the United States has a nearly perfect record. We, we lost almost every single time. Could you give a little bit more context and examples uh, of this? Yeah. So I, you know, again, I here too, I would sort of underscore, like, you know, you could argue that war games are sort of, you know, you're supposed to lose them, right? You're supposed to figure out like where your vulnerabilities are, where your problems are. What was alarming, I think, was the the sort of consistency with which we were losing uh, and the ways in which we were losing. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the conversation we were having here about, you know, because of the way China was building, is building up and modernizing its military, it was becoming harder and harder for us to address these problems the way we had traditionally addressed them, both from the standpoint of how do we deter conflict, uh, as well as, you know, God forbid, if we actually have to prosecute one, how would that go? And to be very clear, um, this is all about deterrence, right? I mean, if we find ourselves in a shooting war with China, like I would contend we've already lost. Um, and the only way we're going to deter is by, you know, having having it be so clear in the eyes and the minds of our competitor that this is just not a fight that they want to pick. And, and that's the thing that I think is, is troubling as to like whether or not they actually believe that right now. Um, so, you know, to your point about the, you know, the, the sort of the learnings from this, uh, you know, kind of years of wargaming that had been going on, you know, it, it was the fact that the things that we had always counted on, the things that we had always assumed would be there for us, you know, that as we were developing, you know, better aircraft or, you know, better ships or better sensors, um, it was always kind of resting on this foundation of, well, we will have forward bases, you know, both on the land and in the sea. Um, we will have access to space and the electromagnetic spectrum. We'll be able to resupply our forces, Um on the other side of the planet <laughs> in time relevant ways. And those were the things that China was, you know, showing itself increasingly capable of being able to take away. Um, and if you take that away, it doesn't really matter, you know, what the what the other are, you know, the other kind of military systems that you're putting on the field, if they're deaf, dumb, and blind, they can't get resupplied, they can't communicate information, uh, they can't receive information. Um, these are these are all the problems that we have. So, you know, I think it's this kind of the takeaway for me was, look, it's this isn't just about, you know, we need to start a, you know, next generation aircraft program and it'll solve all of our problems. It is this is a disruption to our entire way of war, um, which we have become very accustomed to. And it's worked quite well for us, uh, arguably for, you know, 60 to 70 years, um, probably even longer than that. Uh, but because of the nature of this problem, because of the technological sophistication and just the sheer scale at which they are operating, we kind of have to rethink everything. And that sort of takeaway is a much harder one, right? To to you know, kind of glean from these war games where you're sort of saying, 
all right, well, maybe we need to start a new program to fill some narrow technological gap that we have. Um, the thing that was most alarming, I think, to me and, and to Senator McCain and you know many, many others too, was, no, this is a complete challenge to our entire sort of ways and means of operating our military. Um, and we really need to rethink the whole thing from soup to nuts. Absolutely. So something that, that what you said made me think of is we chatted recently on the show about a Chinese Communist Party paper called uh, Unrestricted Warfare, uh, which I, I'm guessing you've heard of. Um, and the paper basically mentions how the Western mind sees war in a very black and white binary way, while the Eastern mind can exploit can exploit that by fighting war war in ways that the West is generally not prepared for. Do you think you know seeing what you have seen uh, inside and outside the government? Do you think that this is a you know valid framework to to think about how how things have turned out? Yeah, I mean, I would um, I would sort of dispense with the Eastern Western sort of dichotomy of it. Um, I, I haven't read the paper, but uh, you know, I would sort of dispense with that and say no, like this is actually. This is the nature of warfare, right? There, you know, it's not sort of on or off. Um, there is this kind of grayscale or continuum between, you know, like complete peace and total war. And I think that is the state that we that we have been in uh, with China for a very long time, where, you know, you could you could roll the clock back five, 10, 15, 20 years, and the kinds of things that they were doing to us in terms of you know, espionage, uh, intellectual property theft, ways in which they were sort of weaponizing things that we don't typically think of as like, quote unquote, military capabilities. Um, but we're all in the service of, you know, improving their strategic position, weakening us, hobbling us, leaping ahead of us. I mean, they, they were 100% all in on that. And I think it's it's only become, you know, relatively recently that we've started to realize that, you know, they're not, you know, a uh, you know a, a strategic partner at you know with whom we are at peace, nor are they, you know, a complete enemy with whom we are at war. It is this complicated thing in the middle where we are we are in a pretty knockdown, dragout state of competition right now, and there is one hundred percent a military intelligence kind of national security dimension to that. Um, I think we've been very late to the game in realizing that. I don't think that's sort of a you know an Eastern Western thing. I think it is a nature of war thing that for reasons of policy, um, you know, clinging to sort of outdated assumptions about uh, the Chinese Communist Party and a whole lot of, you know, frankly, uh, domestic interests that didn't want this to be true because they were making a lot of money in a world where, you know, China was a strategic partner and, you know, everything was uh, was hunky-dory. Um, I think that is the that is the world that we've now, I, I would say on a pretty bipartisan basis, kind of accepted that we're living in, right? I mean, Democrats and Republicans these days can't seem to agree that the sky is blue and the grass is green, but you went from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. And as far as I can tell, when it comes to the question of China, um, the sort of strategic focus there, the ways in which that's informing national security, national defense strategies, it it's a heck of a lot more continuity than it is change. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, I like clearly think that's a good thing. The question then is sort of like, can we actually follow that a few levels down and actually have something that looks like a national consensus around how we're going to compete effectively in this, uh, you know, gray zone, neither peace nor war, but, you know, high level of strategic competition kind of environment that we have. Absolutely. And Christian, um, like I think you said at the beginning, uh, you wrote your book uh, to inform a more general audience of a lot of the problems that, that you're seeing uh, within uh, within the government. Um, if you are someone that read the book, but, you know, doesn't work in the military, doesn't work in the government, is not working at a company like Andrew, but care deeply about the future of America, the future of American values, what do you recommend them to do? You know, it may sound somewhat trite, but I mean, I think the thing that we really need from a public standpoint, you know, is a recognition that we need leaders in Washington who are going to understand the conversation that we're talking about today and are prepared to go in and, and act on it, you know, who are going to be, you know, prepared to get elected to Congress or elected to the Senate or, you know, um, go into public service, uh, uniformed military, civilian intelligence service, what have you, diplomatic service. Um, 
you know, with a desire to really contribute to this competition in much the same way that, you know, in earlier phases of American history, you know, we did mobilize the public, you know, we did sort of galvanize public support for very, uh, you know, in some cases, risky strategies. And I use that term, you know, uh, intentionally, you know, we have to be willing to take more risk and accept more risk as a country. We have to have a public that is prepared to do that and support leaders in Washington who are going to do that, uh, who are prepared to say, hey, I might have to sacrifice something for the greater good. You know, I might have to give up something that is built in my district or, you know, is uh, is something that is kind of near-term beneficial to me uh, in the service of being able to compete over what is going to be a relatively long-term, uh, you know, kind of period of competition. It's a mindset change. And, you know, it is, you know, it is somewhat kind of, uh, you know, pushing against the grain of, I guess, the current zeitgeist, um, you know, but I think it's it's the kind of thing that we desperately need right now in the sense of, uh, you know, a willingness to be more serious. Um, and I think that's the thing that it ultimately comes down to. And you're not going to get the levels of seriousness uh, that I think we need from the government without the public support behind them to say, you know, yeah, we, we are here to do big things again. We are here to do great things again. And, you know, this is, uh, this is something where we're prepared to take a lot of risk and we're going to back you as you do it. And, and look, I mean, to be very clear, like, I think there's lots of problems, but, and there's lots of reasons to be pessimistic or even cynical, but look, at the end of the day, I, I am still an optimist. I am still bullish on America's kind of prospects here. If I didn't, you know, I wouldn't have written the book. I would have, you know, like learned a foreign language and moved out of the country or something. But, you know, at the end of the day, we actually have most of the systemic things uh, that we need going for us. You know, we have still an enormous amount of money. We have eye-watering technology, both you know in the defense sector and outside of it in the commercial world. Um, we have phenomenal, well-educated, patriotic, entrepreneurial, like critical thinking people. Again, in government and out. The thing that we need is just you know a greater level of seriousness, and we get need to get out of our own way. You know, we need to stop sort of blocking our own kicks here. And, you know, that is something, those are, those are problems of our making. Um, to me, the sort of good thing about that or the silver lining about that is that, you know, problems of our making can be problems of our unmaking if we kind of take a different approach to this. And, you know, I'm starting to see that happen. Um, I think we need a heck of a lot more of it, but, you know, at a national level, like this is what we need right now, you know, is a, is a mobilization of the public, um, to do the kinds of big things that we need to do to make the big investments in order to be successful, again, not in the distant future, uh, but in the very near future, because these timelines are all moving to the left, the competition is getting more tense. Um, and, you know, I think there's kind of rocky roads ahead. And, you know, there's there's no time to do this like now, right? It's like the old adage of the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago and today. Um, well, if we didn't do it 20 years ago, we still desperately need to do it right now. And you know, I think that's a position that I think more and more people are in. The question is, how do we capitalize on that and turn uh, you know, what I think is like a lot of pent up potential desire to do things differently into real actionable plans to make an impact at scale? Absolutely. And Christian, you mentioned that you're very optimistic. Uh, I'm curious, what are the main events or factors uh, that, that, you, they, that you've seen develop in the, in the last couple of years that make you the most optimistic that we can solve all of the challenges that we, that we discussed here today? Yeah. I mean, not to recant on what I just said. I mean, I, I, I am optimistic in the sense that I am not, you know, just kind of like throwing in the towel, all hope is lost. Like there are, I, there are reasons for optimism. Like I still wake up every day and see, you know, the 99 obstacles, you know, in my way, our way. But again, I think the reason I am confident that these are things that we can surpass, right? These are obstacles that we can get beyond um, is partly what I just said, you know, the, the, the systemic advantages that we have going for us are pretty considerable. Um, you know, that I think that if you were to ask China, you know, would you trade places with the United States? I'm not sure that they would say, you know, that they wouldn't do it in a heartbeat in terms of the the good things that we have going for us, right? So again, you know, we shouldn't assume that our, you know, our, our rival is 10 feet tall, nor should we kind of assume that, you know, all of the things that are hard for us are somehow going to be, you know, uh, a walk in the park for them. They're just going to skate by all of these, you know, hard obstacles in their way um, and many different ones that are, uh, not in our way, you know, as it pertains to their sort of uniquely authoritarian form of government and all of the sort of downstream effects of that. Um, so, 
there, there are a lot of reasons that I think we can be confident and optimistic. And I think the one that I would add to that is like, I don't think that we have achieved the level of seriousness that we need to be successful. Um, but boy, is it trending in the right direction, you know, again. So I remember, you know, in 2014, when I was in government, you know, I remember reading stories of, you know, people in the last or uh, the Obama administration that were being upbraided for referring to China as a strategic competitor, you know, saying we had returned to an era of great power competition. It was like, you know, that was, you know, that was forbidden. You weren't allowed to say such things. And now it's like, you know, basically passe. Um, there is a degree of bipartisan consensus here. There is a willingness on the part of people in public service um, to really kind of push the boundaries of what their authorities are and kind of get out of business as usual and 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 do hard things and do big things. And you know, I think we desperately need that. And I think the the real challenge is just okay. Well, how do we do it? You know, how do we kind of get to that? Uh, you know, that, that, that sort of like level of seriousness and, and turning it into real action that we need and need, you know, need quickly. That's still a hard problem. Like, don't get me wrong, but like, boy, there are a lot of things that I think have fallen into place to the left of that, that, you know, in the absence of any of them, like we, we would just be in a, in a world of pain right now. Um, so I think the, the good news here is a lot of this, I think is still, you know, our, our destiny is in our own hands. Um, you know, it is not sort of fundamentally out of our control. Now, the, the longer we wait to kind of get serious, to kind of get our act together, the, the less that will be true. And there is a point at some point in the future, you know, and like not the distant future. And I worry it's moving left, not moving right. There's a point at which, you know, we, we just have sort of squandered our ability to control our own destiny. And we are fundamentally living at the mercy of others. And we've seen this happen, you know, historically with, you know, great powers that have failed to sort of recognize a strategic challenge that was facing them and get ahead of that with real foresight and strategy to, 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 to stay ahead or to get further ahead. So that time is coming. And, and that, I guess, is the, the main thing that I was trying to leave people with in the book, which is we don't have any time to waste here. You know, I'm optimistic that we've got all the raw material to be successful, um, but the clock is ticking and you know, it's on us, like fundamentally on us, whether we, uh, whether we do that or not. Amazing. Well, Christian, this is a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thanks for having me. It's been a great discussion.